following sermon was preached on October 3rd, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Pastor Zachary Groff preached this sermon entitled A Priest Accomplishing Atonement on Leviticus 16, 29 through 34. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. There's a question that every man, woman, and child with an awakened conscience must answer. How can I deal with my guilt and shame for the sinful thoughts, words, and deeds that I have committed in the past and, and continue to commit each day? To simplify it, how can I deal with my sin? How can I deal with my sin? Yeah, this is a thorny question and issue because it touches on a thorny problem, the problem of sin. When your conscience is awakened to the reality that you, in fact, are a sinner, it's like you've woken up in the midst of a thorn bush with no clear way out. The thorns are pressing into your flesh, scratching your skin, and every move you make only worsens the situation. You, you try to get out, and the thorns dig all the more deeply into you. You see, the problem of sin is thorny. It's a complex problem. It's multi-layered. First, there's the matter of inherited guilt uh, from the sin of our first parents. And then with that inherited guilt is the abundantly evident negative reality of natural corruption, both of our moral constitution and of our environment around us. Then there's this overwhelming positive reality of the power of sin in our lives, reigning over us like some dark lord. There's a soul-crushing sense of guilt or shame, and that neutralizes our ability to rejoice in God's goodness expressed in creation. And then there's the eschatological dimension, the problem of the future, a terrifying future that awaits guilty men and women an eternity of pain, anguish, and the experience of never-ending destruction apart from God's goodness, the doling out of His wrath and justice in the fires of hell. The Bible shies away from none of this language, and neither should we. So how can we deal with all of this? How do you deal with all of this? You have two options before you. On the one hand, you can ignore the problem. You can deny its obvious existence around you, staring you in the face. You can assert without any sound basis in reality the essential goodness of mankind and make absolutely no headway at all in the amelioration or rather improvement of your condition as a sinful sufferer. Or, on the other hand, you can give heed to the truth of the one who knows the full scope of the horror of your plight. And assenting to his words, the truth of his terrible message of doom and woe for unrepentant sinners, you can then rest in the infinite grace and mercy he offers to all who hear him and believe. In short, you must be born again. And then you can follow the way of life. 
the way of truth, a straight and narrow way, sometimes difficult, sometimes painful, but ever and always sure to lead you into the full realization of all that is ultimately good, beautiful, and satisfying in heaven and on earth. The dark alternative to that is to choose and to follow the way of death, a path lined with the ghoulish um, delights and empty pleasures of a cursed world. What provision is made for us to deliver us from this complex matrix, this labyrinthine prison of sin? What hope do we have? God in His infinite goodness and mercy God in his infinite goodness and mercy has done something. He has made provision for needy sinners. Several weeks ago, we considered Jesus Christ in his office as a prophet, a, a prophet mediator like Moses, standing between God and man, declaring God, to God's chosen people, and by extension, all the world, the will of God for the salvation of sinners. The grace of God for men who are born again and aware, awakened to their plight. And this evening, I will seek to unfold now the work of Christ as priest, in which he brings a comprehensive remedy for sin. And what recourse does Christ, the priest, offer to those who look to him in faith? And well, it has many parts or aspects. Expiation and cleansing, propitiation and satisfaction for sin, atonement and reconciliation of warring parties, substitution and imputation, sacrifice, and very simply, grace, the gift of God's grace in Christ. The big idea of our passage tonight is that Christ's atoning sacrifice as great high priest humbles sinners and cleanses them of the defilement of sin, that they might then stand before God the Father. Christ's atoning sacrifice as great high priest humbles sinners and cleanses them of the defilement of sin that they might then stand before God the Father and live. We'll break this down into two parts or under two main headings. First, the purpose of atonement and then the priest of atonement. The purpose of atonement, the priest of atonement. First, let us look at the purpose of atonement. Our text gives us two features of the purpose of atonement here in verses 29 through 34 as it relates to the people of Israel. Notice what it says. It's, it's for their humility and for their purification or cleansing. But what is atonement? We've been saying that word a lot and I think it, it deserves some definition. The English term that's been handed to us is really a compound word made up of two words and then an archaic suffix. At one meant. Atonement. At oneness. At unity. It, you could equate it to unification, reparation, reconciliation, any of those words. But the idea is that of two separated and alienated parties being brought together into unity or oneness, into communion with one another. Atonement is reconciliation. And in theology, it's the reconciliation of a holy God and a sinful man. And who changes in that equation? Not God, but man. Something happens to man to reconcile him to God. And man's separation from God, the alienation, is due to sin. That complex problem. And there are 
And, that, and the work of Jesus Christ to then address that sin is itself multi-layered and complex. So though atonement is simply and ultimately about reconciliation, bringing two parties together, there are really two features or two things that figure most prominently in the atonement of Christ that we need to understand in order to get the concept. First is substitution, and second is satisfaction. Substitution and satisfaction. In the atonement, Christ takes the place of sinners. He is their substitute in order to then make satisfaction for their sin, to pay the bloody penalty of death on their behalf so that then they might live with a holy God. Our text hits on, this, on these twin features, substitution and satisfaction, hits on these two features of the atonement by making the connection between them on the one hand and then between um, those and then humility and purification on the other. So substitution and humility and then satisfaction and purification. We need to take a closer look at each of these features of the atonement described in our passage, humility and purification or cleansing. Look at verses 29 through 31 with me. Notice that verse 29 and verse 31, as two brackets to these three verses, emphasize the particular day of atonement that is here described in Leviticus 16. And this day is a great work day for the high priest of Israel. He's getting busy, but it's a Sabbath of Sabbaths for the covenant people of Israel. A Sabbath of solemn rest for the people themselves. Twice, in verses 29 and 31, God tells Moses that the people are to rest in order to do what? To humble themselves. To humble themselves. They're to humble themselves by not doing any work. Now, why would this be humbling? Well, this is why. Because you, my friends, are by nature a proud and self-reliant group of worldlings intent upon dealing with your problems without any help from anyone. That's true of all of us and each of us. But they are to rest, to pause from worldly employments, recreations, their work, in order to humble themselves, admitting and confessing that there's something they can't do by all their striving and working. There's something we are not capable of doing on our own. This is so difficult. We don't want to confess that we need help from anyone. It's very hard to get any one of us to ask for help. We have to be rather desperate by our own nature until we've grown up a bit and we've matured into realizing our own limits. But it's especially hard to ask for help from an invisible spirit being, now isn't it? We live in a restless age, an age characterized by the vain pride of mankind, always busy, always moving, always doing, doing, doing. Shopping, playing, competing, demanding, distracting, working, building, hustling, bustling, going to and fro, but never stopping, never ceasing, never reflecting, never resting, never waiting on God to do what only He can do. God alone can speak into that madness, the madness of your insistent and insolent pride and vain busyness. 
And listen to what he says here in our passage. He says, You shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. In Numbers 29, verse 7, in Leviticus 23, 27, Moses calls this day of atonement a holy convocation. It's a worship gathering, a holy gathering for the people whom, he, whom God has brought into relationship with himself by way of covenant enacted on Mount Sinai. And how serious is this to God that they rest then on this day of atonement when he will get to work cleansing them and purifying them to then meet with him. In Leviticus 23, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On exactly the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you all. And you all shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You all shall not do any work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement on, behalf, on your behalf before the Lord your God. If there is any person who will not humble himself on this same day, he shall be cut off from his people. As for any person who does any work on this same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no work at all. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you all. And you all shall humble your soul. In connection with atonement, God says that to insist upon doing your own business, your things, your activities, rather than to rest from them in order to worship Him in this holy convocation on this day, to persist in your own interests rather than to wait on Him for what He alone can do, well, this is the way of death. Of course, this prohibition and consequence, it was not unique to the Day of Atonement. Exodus 31 applies the same severe death penalty to doing any work on the weekly Sabbath under the Old Covenant application of the law in ancient Israel. Now, this is so fascinating to me when I read these passages. Isn't this so alien and foreign to us? You know, I've grown up in a casual, self-serving, irreverent, and petulant age full of immaturity where we complain about the, the pettiest little things. And you know, I'm not alone in that. Each of you, whether you were born in 1947 or 2007, have grown up in a similar age, the age of creature comforts and leisure. There is no sense of holiness in our culture. There's no awareness of man's weakness in our culture. There's no reverence. There's no admission of need for God. There's only stuff. There's only noise, there's only entertainment and pride and ambition. Man is the measure of all things and technology is his magic wand. That's the world we live in. But God gives us something completely different expressed in this Sabbath rest described here. He whispers into our frenetic, crazy situation and lives. He roars above the noise, silencing all our rambling vanities and the atoning death of Christ, of which we are reminded week by week in our holy convocations, in our corporate worship, we are humbled as our work is halted, it's silenced, it's put on pause, and it is shown to be utterly incapable of any spiritual good apart from the perfecting work of Jesus Christ. 
This is the context of atonement. My friends, it humbles us, forces us to admit we can't do it all. The second feature of atonement highlighted in our text is that of cleansing or purification. Look at verse 30 with me. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is the great mercy of God to cleanse and purify his people so that they may then approach him and not be destroyed. What was the warning to Aaron again and again? Don't go in there. Don't go in there right now because you are defiled by sin. You will be consumed. You must do this first. This, that, and the other. Steps one, two, three, four, five, and so on. In order to prepare yourself to enter. And in Aaron's entering, the people, in a sense, enter as well. Being atoned for, being cleansed and purified. That they would not be destroyed. The contrite sinner, the humbled sinner, the awakened sinner. Sees his defilement due to sin in the mirror of God's law. And he cries out to God. In the words of Psalm 51 too, which are very familiar, I think, to most of us, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And God says in the words of Jeremiah 33, verse 8, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. But how will he do this? You know, the Day of Atonement, which we've read, has all these details, all these steps, all these actions in this great event. It really points forward to a much fuller, more spiritual cleansing, a, a, a satisfaction, an expiation of sin. It points forward to that perfect purification accomplished by Christ for his church, which Paul describes in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And then what's the glorious result of this great cleansing work of Christ, foreshadowed by the Day of Atonement, and then spoken of by Paul in Ephesians 5? We go back to Jeremiah 33, the following verse, verse 9. It will be to me, this work, this cleansing, this purification of the iniquities of my people will be to me a name of joy, praise and glory before all the nations of the earth, which hear of all the good that I do for them, and they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. The Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 is but a shadow Yes, a type, a, a pale reflection even of the great work of atonement accomplished by Christ for the beloved covenant community of God. When we could do nothing, when frantic and anxious busybodies are called upon to rest, to put away their distractions and their vain attempts at satisfaction and self-gratification, God commands us to cease our striving. He commands us to rest from our twitching. He commands us invites us very graciously to throw ourselves upon the work of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, our Savior. Christ died to purify his church, to wash away the defilement of sin. Why? That the nations would fear and tremble 
because of all the good and all the peace that he makes for his people. And do we so much as pause to regard him ourselves as American Christians? If the nations are to fear and tremble before our thrice holy triune God who works wonders, who cleanses our defilement and, and takes away our transgressions, who in Christ atones for the sins of his people, what is to be your response as those who claim his name, who claim to believe in him? Do you believe that Christ's work, unseen by you, invisible to your eyes, received by faith in the report of it, recorded in Scripture, cleanses you of the black tar and grime of sin? If so, then why do you not tremble with holy fear and reverence before God? Why do you yet rail against him and his blessed requirements? Why do you yet despise his gifts of peace and joy? Rest in your Savior. Relish the purification, the washing of water with the word. Rejoice in it. It's a cause of rejoicing. Of a holy, trembling joy. You know, he's, he's dealt with your sin. He's, he's dealt with it when you could do nothing. That's the message of the Day of Atonement. That's the message of Ephesians 5, of Jeremiah 33. Again, he has dealt with it. When we could not justify ourselves by the works of the law, Christ came and paid it all. Children, I want to address you specifically tonight. One reason we adults love you so much, why we have such sensitive feelings of compassion for you, is because we watch you get frustrated with your sin at home. We watch you get frustrated with your sin out here in the churchyard or running around with each other. You, you do something wrong, and we see the flash of realization across your face. You, you break something around the house, or you make your mom or dad angry and yell, or you, you hurt your brother or sister or yourself, perhaps even drawing blood, and you begin to get angry or sorrowful or sad. Perhaps you yell or you get sullen and retreat to your room and weep. Whatever the case may be, maybe you speak violent words and you get caught into this feedback loop of sin, just escalating more and more and more, multiplying your frustration. In other words, most of you, boys and girls, are pretty bad at hiding your frustration. In years to come, you will learn how to hide your frustration. You will learn how to maintain a facade of calm so that you can go about your business, your day, your work, whatever your responsibilities entail. And you may find things, some respectable and some perhaps less respectable, to distract you from the frustration of your sin as you try to deal with it. But right now, while you're little, while you're under our roof, you wear your sin and frustration like a coating of dirt and grass stains after rolling around in the yard. And there's only one way to deal with your sin, your anger, your sadness, your frustration, your guilt, your shame, whatever it is. Your sin is a spiritual problem, and there's a spiritual solution. Just as you take a bath to get rid of the physical dirt, you must be cleansed of that spiritual dirt and grime when you're raging inside. 
And Christ alone does that. Christ alone gives you that spiritual cleansing you need to then stand rather not like a beast, but as one made in God's image, stand before God to then experience the peace and joy which he has wrought in Christ. By what he has done on the cross, making atonement, breaking his body, shedding his blood, what we rehearsed this morning at the table, he washes away the sins of many. And the prayer of your parents and of your pastors is that you would trust in Christ, that you would find relief and rest from your frustration and your agony over your sin, that you would claim him as your own. For then, God will win glory among the nations in the extension of his church, in the building up and perfection of the saints. Don't you see this work which you experience at an individual level, and this is for all of us, men and women, boys and girls, that work which we experience and we delight in at an individual level in our personal communion with God then reverberates to the ends of the earth to win glory for God among the nations. There's a cosmic dimension, a global ramification here to our salvation, one that I think is not emphasized enough in our churches. Now, we've considered the purpose of the atonement as described in our text for the humility and purification of God's people as they make their approach to God in worship. And then at verse 32, we see that the passage shifts to focus specifically on the priest of the atonement, the great high priest who goes through all these steps on behalf of the people, the anointed and ordained or, or consecrated man of God appointed to make atonement for the assembly for the sons of Israel. And we need to consider this priest's consecration and then the scope of his work, the atonement's scope. The priest's consecration and the atonement's scope. In the first place, verse 32 gives us a summary statement of the priest's consecration. I want to point out just two words about it. Notice here in verse 32 that the priest is said to be anointed and ordained. Anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place. You know, there are only three types of people described as anointed in the Old Testament. You have the priests, you have the kings of Israel, and on rare occasion, the prophets. For example, the great high priest obviously is anointed. He's described as such here in our passage in Leviticus 16 and in other places. Um, for kings, the prophet Samuel anoints both Saul and David when they ascend to the kingship, to be kings over Israel. And in 1 Kings 19, God commanded the prophet Elijah to anoint Elisha, his successor as prophet. This anointing was done by oil being applied or, or even poured out upon the head. Psalm 133 describes the goodness and pleasantness of Aaron's anointing at priests. It's not just a little sprinkling. I think it's a bunch of oil getting poured out on the head um, this is what Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon. It's a mountain coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing life forever. This anointing, it's paired with ordination in our text. Literally, anointed and ordained could be uh, meant 
uh, could be translated as anointed and whose hand is filled. The one who is anointed and whose hand is filled. In other words, the priest is fully equipped, fully blessed to serve as priest. He's fully equipped and ready to make atonement. He's been anointed and ordained to the task. The Hebrew word for anointing or anointed one, Messiah, is where we derive our term Messiah, which is then translated into Greek as Christos or Christ. This is a formal title which the apostles and evangelists of the New Testament, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and writing the New Testament books, give to our Savior. They call him Christ or Messiah. He is Christ Jesus, the Messiah Jesus, the anointed one Jesus. He was literally anointed by the Holy Spirit in his baptism and then literally anointed physically with oil by Mary of Bethany in the week before his death. Matthew 26 describes the anointing scene. In fact, all four Gospels give an account of this anointing scene. It's one of the, the rare um, accounts in the Gospels that are retold by each um, by each gospel writer, but I'll, we'll go to Matthew because I'll be diving into a Matthew series soon. Matthew 26, at the beginning of verse 6, we read, Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, um, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. We know her name is Mary from other accounts. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And then we skip down a little bit to verse 12. And Jesus says, when she poured this perfume or oil on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Notice what Jesus says about his anointing in this case. It was to prepare him for burial. And what comes before burial? Death. And what does Christ's death accomplish? For his people, atonement. And for what purpose was the priest anointed? In Leviticus 16, to make atonement for the people. In the humble Mary of Bethany's anointing of Jesus at the house of Simon the leper, we have a more glorious anointing than any received by any Aaronic priest, any descendant of Aaron recorded and described in the Old Testament. We have the final anointing of the ultimate great high priest, one ordained into an order of priest kings, distinct and apart from Aaron's descendants in the order of Melchizedek, and yet fulfilling their work once for all in making definite, definitive atonement for the people of God. And this brings me to my second item then. We've looked at uh, the consecration of the priest, and now, now we look at the atonement's scope as described in verses 33 and 34 as we work through the text. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall also make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. And just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. Notice what all needed to be atoned. What all needed to be reconciled to God. We have a list. Holy sanctuary. Uh, or the holy of holies. You have the tent of meeting. 
where God meets with Moses, where God meets with his people. You have the altar, the priests, the people of the assembly or congregation. And then finally, generally speaking, the sons of Israel. This atonement, the scope of it, it's zeroed in on the different instruments and agents of worship in the old covenant economy of God's grace. Each of these items has to do with the worship of God. It's all about worship. What, what is God doing? He is securing for himself a worshiping community, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. In the event of the atonement, on the day of atonement in Leviticus 16, God makes provision for his people to prepare themselves to meet him. He makes provision to cleanse their sin that they can stand before him. And they will meet with him through that great high priest in the holy of holies, within the tent of meeting and at the altar. The people of the assembly will meet him and meet with him through the priesthood. The sons of Israel then, all the tribes, will be the single nexus point between God and the nations for generations until the Messiah comes to extend the kingdom of heaven to the remotest peoples of the earth. There is much debate about the extent of the atonement. Speaking of its scope, I mustn't neglect its extent, but it's not my primary purpose to attempt to resolve that debate today. Did Christ die for all mankind, or did Christ die for the elect only? That's the debate. Now, my answer to that from this text, what this text contributes to that discussion, is that God is interested to make atonement for the instruments and agents of his worshiping community. That's what this text tells us. He's interested to secure for himself worshipers from among the nations. And we know that's the case, especially in light of John chapter 4, which we looked at uh, last week in the morning. And he definitely, definitively, absolutely, and invincibly accomplishes his aim. And we see the fruits of that all over the world today. He has not failed. The church of Christ has rolled over land and sea in its extension around the globe from a backwater Roman province to the ends of the earth. And we praise the Lord for that. In fact, we tremble before him in holy fear. Because Christ did not die in vain. He did not die captive to the whims of man. He did not accomplish a mere reconciliability between God and man. Indeed, he accomplished definite reconciliation between God and man in his death. A most definite atonement. Now, outside of Christ's atoning death on the cross, is there any way to deal with the problem or problems of sin? No. This is the one way. But Christ executed the office of a priest in his once offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Considered the nature and the extent of the atonement in Leviticus 16 and how this foreshadows and anticipates the once for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And at the cross, Christ accomplished the atonement. He dealt once and for all with the problem of sin, the problem of your sins, the problem of my sin, the problem 
of sin for all his people. But his work as priest is not finished, is it? Just as the priestly observance of the Day of Atonement was an annual, continual work, a permanent statute at the beginning and at the end of our passage today for the people of God in the Old Covenant, so too is Christ's work as priest continual. It's not continual in his dying again and again and again. No, that was once and for all. But it's continual in his intercession, in his making that approach into the highest heavens to stand before the throne of his Father, the throne of God, to pray for us, to make intercession for us, to petition for our welfare and well-being and for the glory of God. Though invisible to us, we can't see it with our eyes. He stands before the Father's throne even now, even now, and pleads for the obliteration of sin's power and its effects. What a comfort it is to know that we have an advocate in the Lord Jesus Christ, one who sympathizes with all of our weaknesses and infirmities because he too is 100% man, fully God and fully man, and he knows all that we experience, and yet he pleads for us as one worthy to have access to his Father's throne. We've seen today then that Christ's atoning sacrifice as great high priest, humbles sinners and cleanses them of the defilement of sin so that they may stand before God the Father and live. We have explored the humbling and purifying purpose of the atonement. and We have considered the priest of the atonement in his consecration and also the scope of his work for whom or for what he was making atonement. And I want to leave you this evening to reflect on the fact of his work today, interceding for you today, right now, praying for you, pleading for you, pleading with God the Father to obliterate and annihilate sin and Satan, to utterly destroy his and its power, that we then as Christ's bride, described in Ephesians chapter 5, would be welcomed pure and spotless, into the presence of God. Christ is at work even now as our great high priest, clearing the way for us to approach God and enjoy His eternal blessedness forever. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.